It's Tuesday, May 22nd, and this is The Daily Dive. Some interesting legal questions have come up in the case of Demetrius Pogorchis, the 17-year-old who killed 10 and injured 13 at Santa Fe High School in Texas. Despite being charged as an adult, admitting to the shooting, and planning the attack beforehand, he will not be eligible for the death penalty and might also be up for parole in the future. There is some Supreme Court precedent behind this, and Janet Johnson, a criminal defense attorney in Florida, will walk us through this. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has also laid out 12 demands that the U.S. has for the new Iran nuclear deal, and has threatened the strongest sanctions in history should they not agree to them. Political reporter Lewis Nelson joins us to go over the demands and what happens next. Finally, you might have seen this in your social feeds. The fat tax is everywhere. Retailers are charging plus-size customers more for clothes, airlines are making people buy two seats, but it also has made the jump to nail salons? We'll speak to Nadra Niddle, reporter for Rack.com, for more on this. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. My name is Judge Henry. You have been charged with capital murder, and you have been charged with um, aggravated assault against a public servant. I'm denying your bond on both charges. You have the right to retain counsel. You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to have an attorney present during interviews with peace officers or attorneys representing the state. Are you a citizen of the United States? Yes, sir. Are you requesting consideration for a court-appointed attorney? Yes, sir. Joining us now is Janet Johnson. She's a criminal defense attorney in Florida. With the latest shooting that happened in Santa Fe High School in Texas, There's some interesting legal questions that have come out of it. First and foremost is that the shooter, Dimitrios Pogorchis, is not eligible for the death penalty. He was charged with capital murder and aggravated assault on a peace officer. He killed 10 people, injured 13 others, but he's not eligible for the death penalty. Why is that? Well, even though it's a capital crime, which says that 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 would be a death penalty case, he's 17 years old, and the Supreme Court has deemed unconstitutional either, actually, the death penalty or mandatory life sentences without parole for juveniles. And as a defense attorney, I have to say, even though this is a situation where you would argue if anyone's going to get the death penalty, someone who commits a crime like this should be the person who gets it. But there's a lot of brain science about juvenile men in particular, I'm sorry, I hate to tell you, but that men actually under the age of 23, that their brains aren't fully developed, particularly the frontal lobe and the the part that says, if I do this, that will happen. So it was deemed cruel and unusual punishment and violative of the Constitution to give juveniles the death penalty, even though he may very well die in prison because he'll spend so much time in prison that he'll he'll be an old man by the time he gets out. Yeah, he was charged as an adult. Yes. Obviously, the law is the law. He won't be eligible for the death penalty. But it's interesting because it seemed premeditated. He right. was journaling about it, writing in his computer, Absolutely. his phone, and he admitted it admitted that he did this. In any other circumstance, if he were an adult, 100%, this would be a death penalty case. And and you make a good point. Even though he's charged as an adult, it's specifically children, and he's still a child, even though he's in adult court, it's unconstitutional for them to get really the same punishment that an adult would get in the same situation. He can get life with parole, which means after 40 years he'd be eligible for parole, which isn't even necessarily going to happen. Of course, at that point, he's still only going to be in his late 50s. So perhaps at 70 or 80, maybe he will get out. They had to resentence nationally. I mean, this is a United States Supreme Court decision, two of them. They had to resentence thousands of defendants all around the country because they were either on death row or even after that decision, 
they were given life without the possibility of parole. And again, the Supreme Court said, given the science, given the fact, think about what you were doing at 17, obviously nothing like what this person was doing, but you're not the same person as you are as an adult. So the meaningfulness of this kind of punishment, that severe punishment on a 17-year-old, it's doubtful whether it has a deterrent effect, you know, exactly how meaningful is that threat to a 17-year-old as opposed to, you know, an adult. A lot of people said there's really no possibility that even in 40 years when he's up for a possible parole that he'll be getting out. But it is just kind of an interesting sidelight that he will still be eligible. There probably will be some type of legal maneuvering taking place at that time in 40 years, and the story will surface all over again. Question to your time as a defense attorney, what do you do in a case like this where the person being charged has already said, I did it. It's yeah. such a heinous crime. As a defense attorney, you hope that your client doesn't make statements at all, but I don't think there's ever going to be a question whether he did it. Obviously, there are enough people who could identify him, people who knew him from school. Sometimes you have a trial because you don't have any option. He's looking at life with the possibility of parole regardless. So you just hope that something goes wrong in the trial. It's like a slow plea is the expression that we use as defense attorneys. Usually it's an adult. So it's somebody who you might negotiate and say, if you take death off the table, we'll plead to life. You're really just trying to get them the least amount of time with the knowledge that they're probably going to die in prison one way or the other. The father of the shooter has done a couple interviews. He said a couple interesting things. He said that he thinks his son was bullied and that this might be a cause for the rampage. The attorney that they hired to represent him said that teen had been bullied. He, he declined to go into specifics. He was still trying to get the details, including how the school officials responded. Right. Would this be something he'd try to use to limit some type of charges right. or something? Just, you know, hey, he was bullied. It was going right. on at school and you did nothing about it. It's obviously not a defense. It might be mitigation, you know, if you're talking about any other kind of case. I think the bullying, even some of the students have said there was a girl who he was pursuing and she was rejecting this pursuit and then finally in class, you know, embarrassed him and that's apparently what set him off. I think that's one of those situations, again, as an attorney, if you try too hard to push the bullying part of it, the flip side is he was stalking this girl. And we see that pattern over and over in these shootings that these are men, you know, again, I don't mean to bash men, but a lot of the times these kinds of shootings are men who feel that somehow they've been slighted by women rejecting them. There's a lot of finger pointing that's going to happen. Somebody missed something in that school. He wore a trench coat every day. Is that is that normal? You know, is there something that someone should have done to see that there were signs that were missed? Yeah. But he's not probably in the best position to to say that he was somehow let down. I think the other students have a better claim. And that kind of leads me into this last question. You said somebody missed something at school, Mm. but somebody also missed something at home. With the gun debate going on, this situation is a little different, but there's an effort to put more responsibility on parents and be mindful of their kids and have your guns locked up and everything. What kind of charges might his father face for not properly storing the guns? We don't know. We don't know the case. He said he's... Those are his guns, but he's declined to say how his son got them. Right. And well, illegally, we know because he's 17 and he shouldn't have had them. So somehow these guns illegally got into his hands. And there are culpable negligence statutes. So there is an amount of negligence that you can be where you do become criminally liable if you knew or should have known that something horrible would happen. So, you know, for instance, if he knew his son 
had psychiatric issues or had threatened violence. Apparently he posted something on Facebook with a T-shirt about killing people. All of these things, if you piece them together, responsible adult would have locked up his guns and made sure that he didn't have them or get them out of the house. Definitely anyone who would you know, think about suing him civilly I think would have a pretty strong claim. The question is whether there's very much to get. It's not like a big corporation where you're going to get hundreds of millions of dollars. Sometimes it's just sort of a token lawsuit. But there is a culpable negligence that could apply in a case like this. There'd have to be finding that he was so negligent that it was foreseeable that some kind of outcome like this could happen. Is it foreseeable that he would go shoot up the school? If someone walked in and said, I'm going to shoot up the school, and you said, here, will you hold my gun? That's culpable negligence. There's no doubt about it. You see with drug dealers all the time, it's starting to happen you know, nationally. Probably, I don't think that's going to happen, but you know, the, the dad could face civil liability, certainly. Janet Johnson, criminal defense attorney in Florida, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. These will indeed end up being the strongest sanctions in history when we are complete. We will apply unprecedented financial pressure on the Iranian regime. The leaders in Tehran will have no doubt about our seriousness. Iran will be forced to make a choice, either fight to keep its economy off life support at home or keep squandering precious wealth on fights abroad. It will not have the resources to do both. Joining us now is Lewis Nelson, reporter for Politico. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo did a speech in front of the Heritage Foundation, and he laid out his plan for the new Iran deal. He had 12 points, but what are some of the main points that he wants Iran to uh, concede to? Mainly they had to do, one, with Iran's weapons program. They want Iran, uh, Mike Pompeo and the Trump administration want Iran to give access and transparency to the International Atomic Energy Agency to do inspections and make sure that there's no nuclear program going on and also to end testing of uh, cruise missiles and things like that, basically nuclear delivery systems, things like that. And the other issue that, that the Trump administration has especially made a big point out of is uh, curbing what they see as Iran's bad behavior in the region, things like funding for Hamas, funding for uh, other groups that the U.S. has designated as terrorist organizations, stopping uh, actions that the U.S. sees as destabilizing and undercutting of the Iraqi government, the removal of Iranian troops from Syria, basically trying to force Iran to stop trying to flex its muscle on the uh, on the regional stage, sort of in the Middle East. Right. That's one of the main points that President Donald Trump has started when the campaign uh, into his presidency. He really wants to stamp out terrorism as much as he can. And it seems like this is one of his efforts to add it into the deal, but he's really trying to hit them hard on that front. Yeah, and, and the concern with the Trump administration has always been that they don't see the Iran deal as comprehensive enough, that it doesn't deal with the Iranian government's funding of groups the U.S. sees as terrorist organizations, most notably Hamas, who was right in the spotlight last week with the new U.S. embassy opening in Jerusalem in Israel. The concern by the Trump administration was that the Iran deal uh, negotiated by the Obama administration took the pressure off of the Iranian government, even when all of these other bad behavior and other issues uh, were still ongoing. And in fact, the Trump administration has argued that under the Iran deal, the Iranian government has actually ramped up that behavior, not curbed it at all. And the plan is to impose even stronger sanctions. Mike Pompeo said they would be the strongest sanctions in history. They're trying to squeeze them financially, obviously, 
And he appealed to the Iranian people just the way President Trump did. And he spoke to the people directly. He said, I don't think you want your government doing this. They're really threatening some tougher sanctions going forward if, if they don't want to do anything. Whether or not that's going to be effective is a, is a pretty open question. The United States has a lot of power economically on the world stage, but it is not the sole economic superpower, especially with the European unions taken together as one group. As an example, I mean, what is the United States going to do? Are, are they going to sanction British companies, French companies, German companies that do business with Iran because their governments have remained in the Iran deal and uh, not pulled out of it? Right. They, they have uh, potentially know, what, a lot to lose because they've ramped since the Iran deal originally started. They started doing a lot of business with Iran. And now there's I know there's a couple companies that have already started backing out or, you know, making plans to back out should sanctions uh, hit them. But they really have the European Union has a lot to lose on this. And the issue is thus far that European Union, the, the big European nations involved uh, in the Iran deal, chiefly France, Great Britain and Germany, have all decided that they're going to remain in the Iran nuclear deal. And so uh, that puts uh, the Trump administration at odds with some of its closest allies in Europe and all the way around the world. Have any uh, of them responded to these specific plans that Mike Pompeo laid out? Yeah, already Boris Johnson, uh, who is the foreign minister for the British government, he's basically Mike Pompeo's uh, equivalent in the United Kingdom, came out and, and he referred to this list this list of 12 demands that the Trump administration has put out as the jumbo Iran agreement or something like that. And he said basically that it would be very, very difficult to negotiate anything like that and to negotiate it in any sort of reasonable time frame. The fact of the matter is that these demands as put out by the Trump administration are almost completely anathema to what the Iranian government is about, the Iranian government's own priorities. And, and uh, it would take I suspect almost like an, an overthrow of the government by pro-Western, uh, uh, some pro-Western movement in Iran for all of these demands to be met. Have we set any type of timeline on when to begin renegotiations, or is this just kind of the first thing and seeing what happens after this? Well, this is the first thing, and I think you you raise a good point, and that was something that I think was missing, or at least seemed to be missing from Mike Pompeo's speech this morning, is that there wasn't really any discussion of strategy or what this is going to look like moving forward, what steps the U.S. is going to take to try to achieve this deal that a lot of people see as being completely unrealistic. There wasn't any talk of what next steps are, what plans will be, what the U.S. is going to try to do to engage on this new set of priorities, except for Mike Pompeo saying that it is his intention and the Trump administration's intention to try to expand the pool of nations involved in negotiating this deal, involved in putting pressure on Iran and sort of bringing Iran in line with more global norms. He talked about nations like Japan, South Korea and Australia and India, but notably also talked a lot about trying to bring together a lot of the regional players, nations like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Bahrain. And especially a lot of those regional powers are especially sensitive to the idea of Iran trying to flex its muscle in the region because they are often the target of that muscle. Lewis Nelson, thank you very much for joining us. He's a reporter for Politico. Thank you. Anytime. The word has to get out there. These people are discriminating against us because of our weight. I mean, come on. We're in America. You can't do that. Joining us now is Nadra Niddle. She's a reporter for Rack.com. I was seeing headlines. This article came up in my social feeds 
it said the fat tax is everywhere from retail to the nail salon. And it caught my eye. I started reading it and it was just so interesting. Tell us what this is about. I know there's a couple of different angles in this. The nail salon story is pretty funny because when they talk to the owner, he's just kind of caught in a big lie. But it all kind of started with this British retailer charging their customers more for plus sizes. So last week, a British retailer called New Look kind of created a firestorm on and off social media due to complaints about them upcharging for plus size women's clothing. And it's actually not the first time they've done this. In September, they made headlines for doing the same thing. And they're definitely not the only retailer who's done it. They're just kind of the, you know, the most recent and a long line of them who engaged in this practice. Right. What were they caught doing specifically? I believe that it was all clothing um, that was plus size. So there was a difference between what we call straight sizes and, you know, the lower sizes versus plus size. Once they hit plus size, they charge several dollars more at that point. This is kind of an unrelated question I just want to ask briefly. Don't a lot of retailers uh, do what is called like vanity sizing, where they'll tell you it's one size, but it's actually like a couple sizes smaller or bigger? Right. Some retailers definitely do vanity sizing. And that's a way, you know, to make consumers think often that they are smaller than they are. Let's say a standard size six would, at certain retailers, maybe be more like an eight. And so it's a way to kind of make people feel better about themselves. But I would say an opposite trend happened at the more elite boutique stores. Seems like they actually are doing the opposite of vanity sizing. So there, you might think you're a size six, for example, and there you might need a size eight. I find myself running into that a bit. My weight fluctuates every now and then. And one of the biggest gripes I have is going somewhere, trying on something that I think is like an extra large and it's way too tight. And then I honestly have to leave the store. There's nothing else for me to buy or try on there. Um, Sometimes they'll have options online, which I can go back and get. But oftentimes we just give up and find something else that fits. But there's a a lot of other retailers that do this. I I, I saw in your article, you know, Old Navy, H&M were accused of some of some of these practices as well. Old Navy in 2014 had a controversy because a consumer discovered that they were charging more for plus size women's clothing, but they weren't doing the same thing for larger men's clothing. So she launched a petition on change.org. I believe it got more than 90,000 signatures. When a petition gets that many signatures, you know, the retailer has to respond. So Old Navy did respond, but they didn't immediately agree to stop upcharging. They just kind of agreed to have consultants who belong to kind of the plus size community. That was one thing they agreed to do. And they agreed to change their return policy for plus size clothing as well. You kind of expect some of this stuff to happen in the retail world. But you mentioned that nail salons were doing this also, which was so outlandish. Uh, They were charging people extra because they were breaking chairs or it was harder to service them. Last year, one salon had a sign up saying that if you're overweight, you're going to be charged $45 for a pedicure, where this, the standard pedicure at that salon was $20. A woman who was in the salon, she took a photo of the sign, she posted it on Facebook, and the local news channel contacted the salon owner. He denied having the sign up, even though it was obvious from the photo 
that the background, you that, know, the chairs, the floors yeah. matched his salon, but he denied ever having to sign up. However, he didn't deny thinking that plus size customers were harder to service. You chuckled a little bit, but I laughed the same way when I saw the video of that owner trying to rationalize it because they do confront him with a picture that is the exact same flooring and the sign and everything. It looks like his business and he's right. he looks right at the picture and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no, this is not my place. So it was a, exactly, it's a very funny yeah. video. But this happens a lot of places, you know, in the airline industry, they're trying to save space. Space is, a, is at a premium on a plane and there's reports people need to buy two seats so you can sit comfortably there. And it's right. just a kind of a big trend where they're reducing seat sizes, the space between the seat in front of you and, and, and where your knees fit. What would you say to uh, retailers and, and clothing manufacturers that say, you know, it does cost more. We need more material, uh, more, uh, you know, effort goes into creating the garments. What would you say to that? One thing I would say is that a, a lot of these, say your old navies, even new look, a lot of these fall into the fast fashion category. They're actually not spending that much money to make clothing. They can literally have clothing made for pennies, almost always overseas. So it doesn't cost much to make these garments. So I highly doubt that the cost differential between plus size clothes and straight size clothes is that significant that they need to charge, say, more $15 more for plus size jeans. I don't think it costs them even that much to make the jeans. So to, to make plus size people pay that much more money to me, just it, it doesn't make any sense. And it's not really, to me, about the financial cost. It's more about sending a message again about who their valued customers are and that plus-size people are not valued. Nadra Niddle, reporter for Rack.com. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Okay, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us comments and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.